I just want to give you a warm welcome this Sunday morning. God is sovereign. So uh, if you turn to your Bibles, I know last week we were all convicted, so I know many of you guys probably bought physical Bibles this week. Uh, Isaiah, we're going to be focusing on the book of Isaiah. Uh, this text will be, serve as a, a launch pad of where we're going to today. Isaiah chapter 46, uh, for, focusing on verses 8 through 11. Isaiah chapter 46, uh, verses 8 through 11. Uh, we'll read the passage, pray, and then we'll get started. This is the word of the Lord. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring to pass I have purposed, and I will do it. Let's pray. Father, in this moment, we come before you getting ready to, to listen, to receive uh, your word this morning. So I pray first for myself as the communicator of your word. I pray, Lord, that you would fill me afresh with your spirit, Lord, so that I can uh, teach and preach your word with with clarity, with conviction, with compassion, Lord. I pray that you would use this, this theme of your sovereignty, God, to not only challenge us in our thinking about you, but also to give us hope, to give us hope when things go, when we think things go wrong in life. I pray, Lord, that, uh, that you would use your word this morning to, to give faith, to build us up in the faith. I pray, Lord, that you would use your word to land on fertile ground so that it may bear much fruit, so that it will take our prayer lives deeper, so that we may see you clearly, so that we may pray more earnestly and fervently because we know that you are sovereign, that you are in control. So I pray, Lord, that, that this theme of sovereignty, Lord, would help us, Lord, see you rightly this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in a world that seems out of control, maybe difficult things have happened to you or maybe to those you've loved, uh, maybe to people you have met, it's hard to hold on to the reality that there is one who is perfect in every way and is in absolute control of everything. A few months ago, I was able to attend a family reunion in the Dominican Republic. Now, this was not an ordinary family reunion because I have a huge family. Some people are shocked when I tell them, like, yeah, we had over 150 people at my family reunion. And they ask questions like, so is that like your dad's cousins and stuff? I was like, no. Uh, my grandmother from my dad's side had 20 kids. Uh, she, they, was, they, were, they lived in a place where there was no electricity. So you can just imagine how, you know, married couples entertained each other uh, in those days. Um, so they, they had 20 kids and in that reunion was anybody who is a descendant of my grandparents. So I'm a part of the third generation and there were people up to five generations deep at that, at that family reunion. So as we were planning this, what we would call a historic event, one of the things during the planning stages we kept emphasizing was that this family reunion was not going to be a religious gathering. 
that this was just going to be a time to just connect or maybe reconnect with family members, to just laugh, to just catch up. And we had to say those things because the majority of our family are followers of Jesus. But we had to emphasize that because there are uh, uh, people in our family that have had a negative experience with the Christian faith, but particularly with Christians in particular. So because they've had this negative experience, we had to overemphasize, hey guys, this is not a religious event. This is, uh, we're not going to force God on people. We're just going to be here to have fun, to reconnect with family members, and to learn about our history. So as we got there, we were there for five days, four nights, and on the third night of the reunion, we, we had a theme in the conference hall uh, where we were remembering those who were not with us, and we wanted to, to tribute to those with us who were alive, particularly my uncle, who was the, uh, the man that God had used to bring uh, a family from the Dominican Republic into this great country. So during that night, one of my aunts collapsed and was rushed to the ER, and it was discovered that she had a stroke and that the next day she passed away at 51 years old. We were hit with that news on a Sunday afternoon, and, and many people there, some of the people who still live on the island, were like, well, looks like the reunion's done. Uh, we're going to go back home, make some funeral arrangements. So they called the, the people that are in coordinator of the travel and said, listen, we, we can't pick anybody up. It's going to be at least 24 hours. So we had originally planned to have a gala night where, where we were going to sing songs together, sing a blessing over the family. And so we had a hall, we had a piano, we had some vocalists. Um, so we decided to say, you know what, we're going to change this gala, we're going to pivot, and we're just going to do a memorial service for my aunt. And as we were planning, uh, my dad calls me because he's a pastor as well and says, hey, Jonathan, um, so I'm putting all things together. Can, can you be the one to bring the message and bring the eulogy tonight? And this is like when one hour's notice. I was like, um, okay, um, sure. Um, I get to my room. I, I, I pray for about 10 minutes. And I'm like, God, um, obviously you have taken full control of this family reunion. I don't know what I'm going to talk about. And right away, what comes to mind it is an illustration that I used earlier uh, with my cousin about our time in Chicago. And while we were there, one of the things you do for fun when it's like negative four degrees is you take a, a pot of boiling hot water and you throw it out into the air and watch it poof into mist. And right away I was like, oh, snap. James chapter four says that your life is like about a vapor. So, you know, don't be cocky. Don't be arrogant. Don't plan your days because your life is like a mist. It's here today. Gone tomorrow. Got it, God. Thank you. I, I know what I'm going to talk about tonight. So I get there, uh, you know, I preach. And as I was preaching, it was severely evident that God has taken over everything that was going on. Like it did not catch God by surprise that my aunt was going to die there that night. What God wanted all along was to save some people in my family members. And as much as we kept emphasizing this is not a religious gathering, there is nothing like death that sobers us up to think us of the reality of eternity, the reality of death. And as I was sitting there urging my family members, those that I know that I pray fervently every day to come to Jesus, say, listen, we can, my aunt is proof. We can literally leave here right now and we can be dead. 
Like, get your life right. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus. Tomorrow's not promised. And in that moment, row by row, people started coming up because there's nothing like death that sobers you up. And one of them took the microphone and said, can I say something, Jonathan? You know, I, you know I've been running away from God my entire life. And although we, I was on the planning committee and we kept saying that this is not a religious event, I told God, like, listen, if you want me, make it clear to me at the family reunion. And right there, he says, there's no better sign than this, that God took full control, that he orchestrated the events, that in that moment, my cousin, even one of my other cousins, because I have a lot of them, mentioned, um, say, hey, one, one of the things about my mom she always used to say when she would pass away, she wants everybody to wear white. And since that was the plan all along, we had orchestrated to have a gala night where the whole family was going to wear white. We're going to take a huge family photo at the beach. But guess what? Everybody was there wearing white to memorialize her. We sang, we preached, people got saved. And in that moment, we kept just harping like, listen, guys, God is sovereign. Like you and I had plans but he had a bigger plan. And he had a plan to single some of you here today so that you guys can hear a clear gospel presentation and respond and, and change the course of your lives forever. That's why when I think about sovereignty, um, I like the phrase that God is in control. And it is that reality that God is in control that brings comfort. Now, if it's your first time here, uh, for the summer, we've been going through a study on the attributes of God called God is. And today we're concluding with this idea that God is sovereign. So every week we've been using this quote by A.W. Tozer to kind of think through what it means to think about God. And A.W. Tozer says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We tend by secret law of the soul to move forward our mental image of God. And as we think on that quote and think about all the things we've talked about week by week, it, we, we can reflect on the truth that when we see God rightly, when we see him clearly, it helps us specifically when tragedy knocks on our doors. Throughout this series, we have seen, and there's going to be a, a screen on this a slide with all the things we've talked about. We, we talked about that, that God is triune, that he is one being, but that in that one being, he exists as, as three co-equal, co-eternal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We talked that God is holy, that he is set apart, that he is different. He is on another stratosphere, that God is good, that he is supremely good, that he is wise, that he is the, uh, what I like to call as the perfect chess maker, chess player. Like he knows all of our moves. He knows everything that could have been, things that would have been, and knows the perfect outcome because he is infinitely wise. We saw that God is just, that his justice is perfect, that his righteousness is perfect, that it's, he's just that in a way that he, he will bring people to the consequences of their actions, not in the ways that you and I may think, but he has a plan to carry out his just plan. We also talked about that God is love, that he is the perfect essence of what love is, 
that he is faithful and because he is faithful, we can trust in him. And today we're going to conclude with the reality that God is sovereign. So what does it mean when we say God is sovereign? That's the question that we're going to seek to answer this morning. And, and, and this idea that God is sovereign, I can't even unpack the fullness of this because entire books and volumes have been written on the, on the sovereignty of God. So what we're going to do today, we're just going to merely give you a brief overview of what the scriptures teach when it comes to the sovereignty of God. But when we, when we think about the, this idea that God being sovereign, let, let, let's define it because we need to define our terms. We can't just throw it out and, and, and make ideas as we go. So define, to define it properly and biblically, God being sovereign means that God is free and able to do what he wants. That he is in absolute control of this world and everything that happens without any gaps, limits, interference, or thwarting of his rule. It's this idea that, that God alone determines everything that will happen. It means that God never has any questions, that he is never surprised, that he is never frustrated, that he never wonders, that he's never meted with any mystery, that he never wishes that he could have, that he never feels helpless, that there's nothing that he can figure out, that he never finds himself at a loss. To say that God is sovereign simply means that God is God, that he alone is God and that there is no one who is like him. So as we search the scriptures this morning, we're going to see four unique ways that God has revealed himself to be sovereign. And number one, God has revealed himself to be sovereign through his titles. God has revealed himself to be sovereign through his titles. The first title we see in Scripture that God has revealed himself to be is that he is the creator of all things. The title creator automatically sets him apart from everything and anyone else. He alone is the creator and everything else is creation. Revelation chapter 4 verses 11 says this, Worthy are you, O our Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. He's the creator. Number two, he, he, he has revealed himself as the almighty God. Genesis 17, 1, God reveals himself to Abraham as, I am God almighty. This is to mean, this means that, that God can do anything and everything, and that there is nothing that is impossible for God. Abraham and others call God the, the most high God. In a culture, in a time in the ancient Near East where, where people uh, thought that there were many gods, you know, the, the priest Melchizedek and Abraham thought, well, if there are all these other guys, then surely Yahweh is the most high God, that he is the God, the supreme God above all the other deities. Paul in his letter to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 6.15, says this about God, that he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. And then finally, Jesus in 
the book of Revelation refers to himself in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, as the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. He is the one who was, the one who is, the one who is to come, the Almighty. The Alpha and the Omega means that he is the beginning and the end. That he is the creator of time. That he exists out of time. These claims that God makes about himself set him apart from anyone and anything. These titles, these claims do not allow us to see God differently. We can't just see him as one out of many different gods. We have to see him as the supreme being of the universe. So the second way God has revealed himself to be sovereign is also through his decrees. His decrees. Decrees, that, that sounds like a, that's a fancy word, Jonathan. What, what does that mean today? It sounds like King James English. Let me define it. A decree is an official order issued by legal authority. So when God decrees something, it means that there must be a response. In Genesis 1, we see in creation that God says, let there be light. And what happens? There is light. He says, let there be mountains and coasts. And what happens? Creation response and the things happen. We see in Genesis chapter 6 that God tells Noah, hey, build an ark because I'm going to send rain. Now, in that time, it has never rained. Rain did not come on the earth, so this idea of rain sounded crazy. But God told Noah, listen, I am going to bring rain and I'm going to flood the earth. So Noah preached, built the ark in an act of faith, and guess what? The rain came and there was a flood, just as God decreed. In the Exodus, God sends Moses to Pharaoh to plead with Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. And as a response, Moses tells Pharaoh, like, hey, if you don't let the Israelites go, God is going to send some pestilences because he's, he said he's going to do it. Like, it, and it happened 10 times. And everything that God said will happen is exactly what happened. And as a result, the Israelites were free. That is why the psalmist says in Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11, that the Lord will bring the counsels of nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. This is why the, the prophet that God used, the prophet Jeremiah, to prophesy to the people of Israel that, that because of their disobedience, because of their rebellion, he tells them, like, listen, guys, I am going to decrease 70 years of exile for you because you content, continually persist in rebellion you're going to be slaves for 70 years. They thought Jeremiah was crazy. And what happened? Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar comes in, ransacks the walls. The people get taken hostage. They think Jeremiah was lying, but lo and behold, God was right. Why? Because God decreed it. This is why God says through the prophet Isaiah, our passage today, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none who is like me. Declaring the end from the very beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. This is humbling because as human beings, we always think that we are in control of things. But that when we read a passage like this, it's hard to understand. 
It's hard to understand that when God decrees something, it, 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 he means what he says. He's going to accomplish what he said. And that means not just the ends, but it also it means the means as well. So this leads me to my third way. The third way God reveals himself to be sovereign is through historical event, events and fulfilled prophecy. And, and, and his decrees and these things, they actually go hand in hand. They go together. Because many times in Scripture, we see that God gives a decree or a prophecy that is clearly seen in historical events. This is why when people try to tell me that the Bible is a made-up book, I, I, I laugh. Because it's like, bro, if we, if we were to really examine the claims of the Bible scientifically, let me give you an example. In 545 B.C., right, we just talked about the 70 years, right? God decreed Israel, Judah, is going to be in Babylon for 70 years. During that time, while they were there, there's a man named Daniel. And while Daniel is there, God gives him a vision of what things are going to come. Specifically, a, a vision of four different beasts that represent four different nations. He sees this vision, and, and God tells him, hey, I'm, not only am I going to let you be confused, but I'm actually going to tell you what this means. So in, Dan, in Daniel chapter 8, uh, we see that, that God tells him, hey, these four beasts represent four nations. The first beast was a representation of the Babylonian Empire. We see that he says that it has foot of brass. The second beast represents the kingdom of the Medes and, and Persians. This is the, the empire that is going to come and deliver Israel out of Babylonian uh, exile. The third beast represents the, the, the Greek empire of Alexander the Great. And what is super unique about the description of the third beast is that it, it was very swift in its coming, and it was very swift and it was going. And if there's anything we know about Alexander the Great is that he came to power very prominently and very quickly. But just as it came very quickly, his demise came very quickly. And then he, said, then he shows them this fourth beast, which was like the most powerful one out of all of them. And it was a representation of the Roman Empire. So this was written in 545 BC. And God gives Daniel a specific uh, vision of what historical events are going to line up. And the, when I look at when people say, oh, the Bible was written by man, the, like, you know, these things were made up. I was like, listen, it is no way possible for someone to, to write about things to come with such accuracy. Well, you know, you and I know that because God is sovereign, because God decrees things, that, that because he's sovereign, he has the ability to communicate these things 100% of the time. He doesn't fail. He doesn't miss. If he says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. But people are always trying to, you know, argue with this text that at the end of the day shows that God, that this is inspired, that he, that people didn't make this up, that God was the one who, who was moving people to write these things down to show people a revelation of who he is. So listen, God reveals himself to be sovereign. When we look at the Bible, when we look at the scriptures, it reveals to us who he is and who we are. And through historical events and fulfilled prophecy, we can know without a shadow of a doubt that God is sovereign, that he is working through historical events. So we've seen that God has revealed himself to be sovereign through his titles, 
through his decrees, through historical events and fulfilled prophecy. But the fourth and final way that we see God reveals himself to be sovereign most clearly is through the gospel. The gospel shows us and paints to us the picture of the sovereignty of God. Why? Because the gospel event was an actual event in human history. Uh, it happened around A.D. 30, maybe A.D. 30 or A.D. 33, where Jesus, a real human being who walked in this earth, was tried and condemned under the order of Roman governor Pontius Pilate. It was Pilate, a real person. It wasn't Zeus. It wasn't Hercules. It was a real person named Pontius Pilate that you can look up the receipts. This was a real person. And because Jesus literally walked on this earth and was literally crucified by Roman crucifixion, you know, he was killed. He was hanged naked on a tree. But look at what the apostle Peter says about the crucifixion in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 24. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you know yourselves, this Jesus delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's what, that's what Peter says here. Peter and John, two chapters later, in Acts chapter 4, in their prayer, after they just healed a man who was, who was lame, and they're brought before the Sanhedrin, you know, they were tried, they had to let them go, because it was like, man, this guy, the man they healed was 40 years old, they're, they're, like, they really healed someone, we can't do nothing, so they go, and they pray, and look at what they pray, for truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The crucifixion reveals the sovereignty of God because it was the predetermined plan of God to send Jesus to this world to live a perfect life that you and I cannot live and to die a gruesome death so that you and I may enter into eternal life with, through Jesus Christ. Jesus reveals that the scriptures are true. Jesus reveals that God is sovereign. And it, it, it is miraculous because even when you read the Gospels, hindsight is twenty twenty. So you and I are reading the scriptures and then we see that Jesus tells his disciples time and time again, hey, I have to go to Jerusalem. And when I go to Jerusalem, they're going to crucify me. But don't worry, on the third day, I'm going to rise. And they're sitting there puzzled, like, what does this mean? What, what do you mean, Jesus, that you're going to be crucified, but then you're going to... Like, he told them this like three times. He told them, listen... No one takes my life. I lay it down. He told that to Pilate. Pilate says, don't you know I have authority to take your life? And he was like, listen, you only have the authority that God gives you. I lay down my life. I'm here because I want to be here. I'm here not because you put me here, not because they conspired. This is the plan of God, and this is what's going to happen. Jesus hanging on the cross was done by his, cho by his choice. And as uh, Corey mentioned earlier, he did that simply out of love because he loved you and I. 
He didn't want us to perish. He didn't want us by the means of the law to be to spend eternity away from God, receiving the just penalty of our sin. So what did God do? He sent Jesus to live a perfect life and to die a sacrificial death so that we can be brought back to God. So what are the implications, right? The sovereignty of God is more than just an idea. It's more than just a theory, more than just a philosophy that we want to talk about. The sovereignty of God really has implications for our lives. So number one, the elephant in the room, number one, the sovereignty of God does not negate human responsibility. Like that, that is a tension right there because when we think about passages of scripture, mainly the one in Isaiah chapter 46, where God says, listen, I'm God alone. I declare the end from the beginning. What I declare, what I have decreed, these are the things that are going to happen. Why? Because my counsel shall stand. I will do what I purpose. It makes you think like, wait a minute, What's our role in this? Do we have choices? Are we robots now? Like there's philosophy class on just on this topic alone, but that is the reason why some people take issue with Christianity or Christian or not only with Christianity or it's because some Christians, you know, made it seem like God is this tyrant and that, yeah, you are a robot and they go as far to say such things. But this, this is the thing. The Bible affirms both that God is sovereign and that people will be held responsible for their actions, that people make choices. So when I say the sovereignty of God does not negate human responsibility, it means that that God establishes what he has ordained without reducing us to robots. That what we think is real and important, what we say has meaning and purpose, our choices are valid. I chose to wear this green T-shirt this morning, right? I, I, this morning, looking through my closet, I said, you know, I'm a, I haven't worn this one in a while. I'm going to wear that one. Our thoughts, our desires, our actions, our choices, our experiences, and relationships, and locations are all the means by which God accomplishes all the things he has ordained. God rules the universe in such a way that our choices are valid, our actions are important, because he is sovereign over the ends and the means as well. Number two, belief in the sovereignty of God results in humility and joy. You know, wait a minute, Jonathan. Why? I get humility, but why joy? Uh, this is like red pill Christianity right here. Like you gotta, you gotta, The sovereignty of God is sometimes a hard pill to swallow for some people. But the reason why it produces humility is because it's a helpful reminder that we're not God, that we are ultimately not in control. It's tempting to take credit for things we could have never produced on our own. It's tempting to to be proud of ourselves for things that we should be giving God praise. This thing is super humbling, but it also produces joy because the God who produces the world, the God who controls the world, it, it, it helps you understand that when you are going through situations, maybe it's infertility, maybe it's a loss of a job, maybe it's a loss of a loved one, maybe it's because someone has cancer, maybe it's because you're going through a trial, it gives you joy because you know that your pain has purpose. We know that God is working these things in such a way that they're working for your good and that he is going to receive, we don't know how, glory out of this. 
Like I mentioned this earlier with the death of my aunt at a family reunion. It, we mourn her passing, but God turned her death for his glory so that it would be a wake-up call to some lost people in my family. So it gives us joy because it knows that, you know, life isn't up to us. We don't have to figure it out because God has it figured out. Number three, the sovereignty of God guarantees the reliability of his promises. When you read the scriptures, we see that God gives some promises to his people. And because he is sovereign, we can know without a shadow of a doubt that if he said it, not if it's a principle, like Matt covered last time, like, wait a minute, if I train up my child in the ways of the Lord, is it a guarantee that they're going to walk with Jesus? No, that's a principle, not a promise. But a a promise is, is that if you turn to Jesus, you will have eternal life. That's a promise. A promise is that I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. There are promises in Scripture that we can claim for ourselves because God said it, and because he said it, we can take hold of it. It gives, you know, we can sing. Maybe some of these things motivate you. Maybe in times of struggle, it gives you courage. It fills you with hope because we know that God is sovereign, that he's eternal and he has an unshakable rule. In moments of weakness, in moments of discouragement, anxiety, fear, you can lay hold of God's promises. If, you're, if you are struggling with anxiety, Philippians 4, 6 says, let's not be anxious about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your petitions be known to God. Why? Because he promises when we do that, that the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your minds and your hearts in Christ Jesus. If you lay it down, he's going to give you peace. And lastly, the sovereignty of God gives you real hope when you pray. As we mentioned earlier, God doesn't just determine the ends. He also determines the means, the actions, the reactions, the responses all the things that produce the final results of the ends. And one of the ways God has chosen to work on this earth is through the faithful prayers of his children. We pray because God is sovereign. We pray because we know that God can change hearts. We pray because we know God can heal. We pray because we know that their sickness has to bow down to the feet of Jesus. We pray because we know that he ultimately will provide for his children. David said in Psalm 37, I have been young, I have been old, but there's, there's one thing I have not seen, and it is the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Our prayers are not outside of his sovereign plan, but they are a crucial part of his plan. We pray because God is in control, and we know that he will hear and he will answer prayers according to to his will. So as we conclude and as the band comes back up, when a loved one lies in a hospital bed, we know that God is in control. When we think of the most difficult times in our life, maybe difficult times with a child, a wayward child in particular, God is in control. Whether you have a close friend in the intensive care unit, we know that God is in control, whether it's because there is a recession or, or maybe uh, there is some type of uh, pandemic 
We know that God is in control. Nothing in your life, God does not either, uh, nothing will ever enter your life that God does not either decree or allow. There's nothing ever that God will enter into your life that if you are willing to trust him, that you know that he is going to work it out. That is what it means to be sovereign, that he is in control of all things. My family reunion was a fresh reminder that God is sovereign. The fact that I came to Jesus was a testimony to my parents that God is sovereign. When I was out promoting nightclubs and selling drugs, I would come home at four o'clock in the morning sometimes watching my mom with oil in her hands, praying over my pillows, God save my son. And literally, a couple weeks later, I come to the feet of Jesus because God uses the faithful prayers of his people to work on this earth. So my prayer, my hope is that this sermon series that God is, as we talked about the different attributes of God, helped you see God more clearly. That he helped you pray more fervently and effectively. That when you pray, you can pray with faith, knowing that God is good, that he is wise, that he is just, that he is sovereign, that he is loving that it has produced a hunger in you to know him more deeply and intimately. And if you are here today and you don't know the God of the Bible, this God that I've been talking about, this God that has revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ, I urge you, come to him. He says, all who come to me, I will not cast out. I'm not gonna, if you come to me, I'm not going to reject you. The sovereign God of the universe who revealed himself in Jesus Christ, walked on this earth, lived a perfect life, laid down his life. They, they didn't kill him. He laid it down. He rose back up, demonstrating that he has authority over sin and death. And one day he is coming back. And because he promised he's coming back, we can, we can surely believe that he will come back. He came to reconcile us back to the Father. So if you don't know him, Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus. Let go of your pride and surrender to him. He will cleanse you. He will forgive you. He will give you a new heart and new desires that will cause you and empower you to live the life that he wants for you. So as we prepare to take communion, let's remember and reflect that the sovereign God who orchestrated the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus that he orchestrated that so that we may experience new life in Jesus, the forgiveness of sins, and spend eternity with him. Let's pray.